Support for Need to Know comes from the Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovation in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. Learn more at Carnegie.org. Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Wilson Center, a podcast for policymakers available to everyone. Always informative, nonpartisan, and relevant, we go beyond the headlines to understand the trend lines in foreign policy. Welcome back to the Need to Know podcast. I'm your host, John Molesky. Now, regular listeners will have noticed that I am not the Need to Know host you've come to know and love. That would be our friend and former colleague, Aaron Jones. And I know many of you will be disappointed to learn that Aaron has left the Wilson Center and will now be sharing his considerable talents with the Committee for a Responsible Federal Government. Aaron is the creator of this podcast. He not only produced and hosted Need to Know, but Renaissance man that he is, Aaron actually composed the music you hear at the open and close of each episode. Speaking of which, there have been more than 100 episodes of Need to Know with Aaron's departure. The reins to the program have been passed to Sharana Harris, and uh, who will be doing the producing, editing, among other things, and I'll be handling the hosting duties. And together... We're not only grateful for what Aaron uh, has created, but we'll also attempt to do justice to the legacy he's left us with. And with that, let's get to this episode's guests. I'm thrilled to begin my term as Need to Know host with two remarkable people. Halle Fandiari is a Wilson Center Distinguished Fellow and Director Emerita of the Center's Middle East Program. And Marina Ottaway is a Middle East Program Fellow and the former head of the Middle East Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Great to see both of you again. Welcome you. to the uh, you, Need to Know podcast. So... Today, our guests are going to help us understand the current wave of protests in Iran. And I think in, maybe it was in the joint article that both of you just wrote that was published by the Wilson Center. I think uh, that where I read that the history of these protests, not just in Iran, but in the Middle East, has been high hopes followed by disappointment. Uh, is that what we're looking at again? Uh, Holly, we could begin with you and then we'll go to Marina. Okay. Um, in the case of Iran, definitely, and I suppose in the case of the rest of the Middle East countries of the Arab Spring also, Marina will cover that. I will focus on Iran. Look, Iran had its success in 1979 when you had the Islamic Revolution. Don't forget that because the country voted with its feet and on the ballot box to overthrow the monarchy and have an Islamic Republic. But it didn't take long to be totally disappointed with what the Islamic Republic was going to offer. But the demonstrations leading to the overthrow of the monarchy and the revolution took a whole year. It didn't happen in one week or two weeks or three weeks. Interestingly enough, today is the 40th day of the death, of the murder, better said, of uh, Mahsa Amini, the young Kurdish 25-year-old. Yeah, who showed a, a little bit of hair and was arrested and uh, she was killed. And in these... Uh, Taking you back to 1979, there was a death in the city of Tabriz, and on the 40th anniversary, there were lots of protests, and that is how the protest movement 
started and mm-hmm. a year later the regime was overthrown. And, and, and Masha was wearing a hijab, just not correctly. Of Is course. Correct? Of course. Yeah. I and, mean, and if the morality replaced. She showed the sun hair. <laughs> yeah. And that yeah. was the great crime yeah. that cost yeah. her life. Yeah. I mean, everything else has been settled and solved in Iran, and all is left is the little bit of hair to, to trigger the last six weeks what has been going on. The number of deaths are almost. Now, today, the latest figures were 234 Mm. people have been killed, among them 29 children. And this is the first time, John, Marina, that in the life of the Islamic Republic, and before that, that the security police and forces are even shooting at children. So, we Marina, this. Uh, sorry, Holly, I didn't mean to step no. on your your last thought there. So, so Marina, this momentum of we, people either on the inside and the outside get their hopes up, but then it doesn't really gain traction. Is that what you're looking at now? Do you see yes. the same signs? I I share uh, Halle's pessimism yeah. about uh, the outcome here. I have done some work on uh, the Arab protest movements, and I also went back to look. Uh, somewhat superficially, at the greater revolutions, when do they succeed and mm-hmm. when do they fail? And I think the the answer is always the same. It is if there is organizations behind the, the movement. In other words, the spontaneity of the movements, which is in many ways their strength and what makes them so appealing. I mean, you look at these young kids taking to the streets and you want them to succeed. But the fact is that the evidence shows that unless there is uh, there is an organization behind it. So like the labor unions in Tunisia. The labor unions in Tunisia. How many in the in the the Islamic yeah. revolution mm-hmm. uh, back there? Uh, Lenin and the Communist Party in Russia. The, so, the Communist Party in China. I mean, there was a huge amount of organizing, which is unfortunately the reason why usually uh, revolution lead to authoritarian regimes, because you have these strong organizations taking over. And somebody to negotiate with. Yeah. So these current round of protests continue, even without leadership. Is there an opportunity for leadership to emerge? It's too soon to say whether there will be a leadership from inside Iran or outside Iran. Because if it is inside Iran, they will be arrested immediately, put in jail if they are luck if they are lucky, you know, and executed, which probably would happen. But outside Iran you see voices, but it's too soon, you know, six weeks later after it it's a bit too soon to see who is going to be the leader? As Marina said, during the Islamic Revolution, it was not only Ayatollah Khomeini sitting in Iraq and sending out tapes and you know telling people what to do, but you had the network of uh, mosques all over Iran and clergy in every little village in Iran. There was a local cleric. There was a local mullah sitting there who was listening to what was told to him 
by the central government, not the government, but the main mosques in Tehran. So while there's no leader, no official leader or no organizing institution or organization, this is different in that it is, at least informally, being instigated or led by women. Does that give you any hope for a different outcome or does that change the calculus in any meaningful way? I don't think it does. I mean, I find it very encouraging to see these women taking her destiny in their own hands. But in terms of of the chances of a movement without a structure and without leadership succeeding, I think the fact that they are women does not make much difference. You see, there are two reasons why this this movement and the movements in the Arab countries, the, the Arab uprisings, had no leadership. One was philosophical, that there is young, many young people being philosophically opposed to the idea of hierarchies. We are not going to create an organization. That's our parents, I think. We don't do things that way. And the second one is expediency. That is the fact that, that it's much easier for a government to destroy a hierarchical organization than to destroy a network mm-hmm. because you don't know where to start. And so both... Uh, both uh, arguments essentially go against the emergence of uh, of a structure and the emergence of leadership. Unless, as uh, Halle said, it comes from the outside. But I don't know enough about yeah. the exiled movements because yeah. often exiled movements are totally out of touch. Conventional wisdom says countries don't change from the outside, they change from the inside. Well... Khomeini is a bit different. I mean, outside of an an actual invasion or occupation. Yeah, Yeah, that's, you're right. But you know, what makes it different this time, and look, it has lasted six weeks. It's not 10 days or two weeks and so on, is that you have a generation, you have a generation known as the Gen Z, Mm -hmm. you know, Now, they are referred even in Persian to them as Gen Z. That is not afraid of getting killed. And this is, for me, this is really baffling that a young person goes out night after night knowing that she or he may not return home. And they do that because it shows how sick and tired they are, you know, with the regime. But there is no organization, but you know, there are professional groups. I was talking to Marina yesterday and telling her, for example, a small labor union, which is relatively powerful. They have come out in support of these, uh, of the young protesters, yeah. you know, there are the a small the union of medical doctors, for example, eight hundred doctors signed a letter asking the government stop, stop killing them, and so on. So, whether at some stage we will see this leading to strikes whether we will see a crack in the revolution regard, which will then change the whole atmosphere even, you know, on the streets, 
We haven't reached that point, and it's a question mark. Is it clear at this point what the protesters are asking for? One thing would be a loosening of these rules that the uh, so-called, uh, what is the, the term for the police who made the arrest, the, uh, um, the morality police? Morality. That, that, that so far, that a loosening of those rules, is there something more specific, or is this a case, because we don't have leadership, that there are not a clear set of demands? Well, I... The the demands kind of balloon because they started, you know, a protest having to against the hijab. But it's much more and they end up by being protest against the regime in general. Uh-huh. But also that makes it very difficult for these groups to to be able to claim a victory. And the government, I must say, it's proving very, very unyielding. Let me give you an example. The regime in Saudi Arabia is extremely authoritarian. But one thing that Mohammed bin Salman discovered is that it pays in terms of popularity and support. To allow people to go to the movies. And to put... Or to women tell, to drive. And to tell the, the, the morality police, they also had the morality police, to take them off the street. Yeah. In fact, the morality police is rather well, depressed. That raises the question, why this regime is so adamant in holding the line? Are they afraid that once they begin, once the genie is out of the bottle, so to speak, that it be, creates a momentum that they can't stop? Precisely. John, don't forget, Mohammed bin Salman has been then only a decade or a bit more to do these things. The Islamic Republic was there for 40 years. And from the very beginning, you know, they focused on pushing women to become a second-class citizen and to control, and to control. This was it. And control in both in the social way, in legal way, and also in political way. So there is no room, no room for these young people to breathe not even going to sit in a coffee shop to have a cup of coffee together without worrying that the moral police comes after, the morality police comes after them. But also, every time you had a president who is slightly more moderate, like Khatami was, they would leave the people alone, you know. But this current president, I mean, reintroduce the morality police with a vengeance on the streets. And this is the result. There is a difference in generation, I think, which is important. I mean, Mohammed bin Salman is, what, 35, 36, (laughs) whatever. And he understands, I mean, I'm not an admirer of him, but (laughs) I understand, uh, he understands that what is important to him is what? Holding on to power. He's the minister of defense. He has, in, you know, he, he's the prime minister. Now he has everything in his hands. Let the kids go to the movies. And in fact, that does not do any harm to his power. Uh, let them, uh, uh, you know, let them not uh, the, the sort of mingle in public. That's not going to undermine his power. And in fact, he has gained power. 
by doing this. Because yeah, you mentioned it's popular. popular. He's popular. It's, uh, right. And even within a, a totalitarian society, popularity that is helps. a useful, that helps. But, a useful tool. But look, he has also put uh, women activists in jail and given him, them long sentences. So it's Well, not, that's your point. You don't admire him. We yeah, don't want to go too far. Not, in, not in, because no. everything has to come from him. The women uh-huh. activists were undermining his power. The kids who want to go to the movies are not. So, you know, part of the Need to Know podcast, as it is is uh, marketed to people on the Hill, both members of Congress and their staffs, uh, giving them in- useful information. So put your policymaking hat on. If you're giving advice to the U.S. Congress or any policy bodies around the world who want to help those in, in the country who would like to protest against these draconian measures, what can you do from the outside? What are the policies that would be most effective that won't perhaps make the situation work by causing the regime to push back? Well, let me... I know it's a tough question. Let me have a stab of it. I think it's more a question of what you don't do than Uh what you do. In other words, yes, it's all right to say, uh, you know, we support your goals, we support... But you also have to be very careful that at some point you end up by sounding ridiculous because people become a very... uh, very cynical. Yes, we a paper are tiger. You, but how? What Set yourself you, up to become a paper what, tiger. What are you doing? But I think one of the most important things in all these cases is for the US or anybody else not to embrace a specific person and try to make the... It's easier in this case because it, it's not clear who the specific person would be, but it would be very dangerous to uh, embrace anybody as an example of the reformer that we want uh-huh. to take over in that case. Well, like the woman here at the table with us who was accused of trying <laughs> to lead a velvet revolution when you were visiting yep. your mother yeah. and ended up in prison. That's yeah. right. But, um, John, I think in this case, the case of Iran, two things are very important. First of all, if it was, if the protest movement had not started with women, by with the leadership of women, the outside world would have not been interested. And this is the first time in all these 40 years when you have had a protest movement in Iran that you had such an international support. Mm-hmm. So therefore, I think there is certain things that one can do. I mean, to bring pressure on the government you know, for example, they have started putting these protesters on trial. The first trial was today. Trying to delegitimize these trials is very important, you know, by the outside world. Because inside Iran, you can't write anything because of the censorship. Delegitimizing these uh, trials and insisting that all the arrestees, all these people who are sitting in jail should be released. You have kids of nine-year-old kids sitting in jail. I mean, this is absurd. You know, they now go into elementary schools and arrest children. So this is the kind of thing that the outside world can do. Plus... I mean, one step even further is for the European, I think, to just withdraw their ambassadors and for a while. 
they have there is a precedence for that when iran uh, had the fatwa against salman rushdie the european pulled out not for too long but mm-hmm. you know it is just bringing pressure and on the, on the government and this is not interfering you know it is the reaction that the statement of that values the, that the west yeah. can bring in right? it's yeah. not interference you know it's a moral position yeah i mean whether or not it really has an impact that that's a different issue but it's certainly a moral position to yeah. I, I I mentioned Holly's uh, ordeal, and I should mention her book for people who are interested. My Prison, My Home, a fantastic uh, uh, description of everything that you went through and a lot of lessons to be learned from it. And Marina, I also want to mention you and your other half. Notice I didn't say better half. Uh, <laughs> I am the better half. <laughs> that's right. You and David, are, Ottaway, are working on a book uh, uh, about these things, right? Uh, about the... Uh, the whole larger picture in the Middle East. Well, the book is out. Oh, it's out. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Just listen to me. I, I meant, I meant, so, and, and the, what's the title? I have it in my notes, oh, but you can find it quicker than me. Of four words. There you go. The Middle the East. Arab regions Arab, after, after, the after the uprisings. The yeah. Terrific. Another book I want to recommend, even though I'm behind, obviously, in uh, talking about well, it. Well, at least it's out. <laughs> <laughs> Which is always good news for an author. Uh, so anything we haven't covered before we say goodbye on this episode, is there anything important that we haven't discussed that you think it's important for people to need to know? To I think maybe Marina can say two, three sentences about why Uh, take the example of Tunisia and also yes. Egypt. Why it fla- failed? Well, Tunisia succeeded originally because the labor union threw their weight uh, behind the, the uprising. I mean, everybody go, talks about the history of the fruit vendor who immolated himself. Yes. It was the third case of immolation in a few weeks. This was a had become, unfortunately, a common form of protest. And the other ones got, you know, two lines in the newspapers and nothing happened. And what you had instead in this particular case, the local teachers' union threw its weight behind it. And then the entire labor union organization came on behind it. So that's a clear example of where there was an organization. Now the case is slipping. The, the Tunisian democracy is quickly grinding to a halt, the labor unions are not participating. They have sat on the sidelines, so there is not that element of organization. In Egypt, you had, you had two organized forces in Egypt, and they're the, one, the ones who decided what happened. One organized force was the military. The tool is all, was always there behind the scenes and held the real power, but the military originally decided to play nice and to play democratic. And they allowed elections to take place, and who won? The best organized force, civilian force in the country, the Muslim Brotherhood. The other political parties were not organized. So we, it always goes back to the issue of organization. Yeah, the lesson seems clear. And able to muster people for whatever you are trying to do. Wow. Maybe that'll be the next stage, right? We'll, we'll keep hope alive. Hale Esfandiari, Marina Ottaway, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, uh, we want to tell our listeners that if you enjoyed the information you got today, that plenty more where that came from at wilsoncenter.org and also other podcasts from the Wilson Center. Uh, 
You'll be able to find reliable, fact-based, nonpartisan information on topics of international importance. And that's what we'll continue to bring you here on Need to Know. And thanks for getting us off to a great start in the, the new generation, the new iteration of Need to Know. Uh, until next time, I want to say to our listeners, thanks for joining us. We'll see you again.